Atomic Hobo is back. Regular listeners will know that I took a break recently so that I could finish writing my book. Well, I have finished it. I sent it to the publisher yesterday, uh, that's Monday morning, at 6am. Having been up all night, uh, staring at it, hoping that would somehow make it better. And then as dawn started to break, I thought, oh, just send this thing. So I sent it. And then I went to bed and slept most of the day. It's with my editor now, and I can only hope that he is reasonably pleased with it, and that he's then able to shape it into a good book. So I wait to hear his verdict, and until then, well, back to podcasting. And what else? I suppose start work on a second book. I do have ideas for three more nuclear books, so I suppose I have a bit of a rest and then I start the next one. Before I begin this episode, can I quickly welcome all the new listeners? During my break, uh, Atomic Hobo received two boosts which brought lots of new listeners to the podcast. One was a kind recommendation from Tom Holland on his podcast The Rest is History. And then last week, the Radio Times featured Atomic Hobo in its top 21 podcasts. We were recommended by Jeff Lloyd, who has been a great supporter of Atomic Hobo. So welcome all new listeners. Normally the podcast is out every Monday, but as I said, I gave myself a break recently to get my book done. Thanks are also due to my patrons, the fine people who support me on Patreon, donating money each month so that I get a small income from this podcast and I don't need to subject you to annoying ads. Even though I went quiet recently, they stuck with me and there are now 200 good people supporting this podcast each month. So thank you to every one of you. Whether you donate a pound a month or if you're at the top of the scale, I see your names and I value your support. So hey, you can have this episode. (laughs) There we go. This one is dedicated to my Patreon chums. To paraphrase Elton John, you can tell everybody this is your podcast. So let's start the episode. This is another from our Four Minutes of Thread series. For new listeners, this is a recurring series where we examine Threads, the greatest nuclear war film, in detail, four minutes at a time. And now we have reached the 44th minute of the film, which is the segment where the bomb finally drops. So we start today at the 44th minute of the film, and we're in the Kemp household. It's always busy and chaotic in the Kemp house, 
contrasted with the sedate and icy Beckett house, the middle class household. The Kemps, they're always bickering and yapping and tidying up and the TV and radio are always blaring in the background and children are scampering underfoot. Some might say that's the consequence of having a house full of children. That's what a happy, close family is. Noise and activity and warmth. Of course, the writer of Threads, Barry Hines, was famously left-wing and fiercely proud of his working-class roots. So there's no way he'd be sneering here at the idea of a chaotic working-class household. No, I think all the bustling activity of the Kemps is a thing to be treasured, a thing to be regarded affectionately. They might bicker and irritate one another, but that's because they are so close and so at ease with one another. Well, in this scene, we see more of the same. Tutting and complaining and kids getting in the way and the ever-present nagging drag of housework. Mrs Kemp is clearing the breakfast dishes and Michael and Alison are dashing about as usual. And the only person doing something strange, the only person who mucks up this typical Kemp domestic scene by doing something out of the ordinary is the father, Mr Kemp. He's positioned right in the centre of the frame, right in the middle of the scene, standing on the threshold between two rooms, and he's unscrewing the kitchen door, taking it right off its hinges. Ordinary life goes on around him as he tends to this weird task. Of course, he's taking the doors off so that he can build the government-recommended fallout shelter. And in doing this, Mr Kemp regains his purpose and his masculinity at last. We're talking here in terms of unfashionable gender stereotypes, of course, but Mr Kemp thus far has been emasculated. He's been made redundant from the steelworks, from his typically male and macho job involving hard work and manual labour, a job which, of course, allowed him to bring home a wage and be the breadwinner. This all happened off-screen. We never got to see Mr Kemp in that proud role. In the film, instead, he's been made redundant. He's no longer required. He's been dumped, relegated to the home. And in an earlier scene, as if to really rub it in, he was wearing an apron and cooking the dinner and fussing around the dining table, serving a meal to his wife, who's now the sole breadwinner. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but this was the 80s, in a northern working-class household, and Mr Kemp had suddenly gone from hard manual labour to making dinner in an apron. But here he gets his toolbox out, and he unscrews the doors, and in doing so, finds his purpose again. No longer the redundant stay-at-home husband. And you better believe he has ditched the apron. He's active again. Tools and work and energy and purpose. Back to his old role as both a manual worker, but also as a protector of the family. He is trying to protect them by building this fallout shelter. But just as his work at the steel mill was unwanted, 
so will his work be futile here too. We all know how useless his little fallout shelter turns out to be. Mr Kemp just can't catch a break. There's no place for him. As happens so often in threads, the radio was on, but no one's paying attention to it. As the family dash around, a stern voice is instructing us on the radio on what to take into our fallout rooms. But the family, as usual, are oblivious to it. Mrs Kemp's only worry is that taking the doors off the hinges will scratch the paintwork. Alison is fretting she'll be late for school. But is school even open today? Oh, I don't know, sighs Mrs Kemp. She's got other things to worry about. None of them are the nuclear bomb. They are domestic concerns. They don't care. The only person who's worrying about the news and reacting to the news is the emasculated and redundant Mr Kemp. The radio is instructing us to take food into the fallout shelter, enough food to last for 14 days. It gives us these instructions as it sits on the kitchen table which is littered with plates and cups from the Kemp's breakfast. A box of cornflakes is there, a block of butter, the teapot, and the big glass bottle of milk. Milk, of course, and milk bottles, which appear so often throughout the film. Here they make another appearance. So the kitchen table is full of the debris of breakfast, all this largesse and luxury, which will be unthinkable in just a few hours. In Britain, of course, we import most of our food. And after nuclear war, well, we can assume that these imports would halt, even if our trading partners were able to supply us and were willing to. How could we receive food? Won't our ports have been destroyed? Won't our airfields have been targeted? And if we did receive the imports, how would we distribute the food? Our road network will be smashed, melted, and any surviving routes surely strewn with rubble or blocked with refugees. Okay, well, we could perhaps look to our farmland to feed us, our green and pleasant land. Well, no, not if the animals have been killed and the land is thick and crispy with fallout dust. No, once our little food stockpiles run out, there would surely be famine in Britain. So no more carefree family breakfasts. The only bright side to all of this, if you can call it that, is that nuclear war will have killed millions of us. So yes, there will be less food to go around, but also less people competing for it. The Kemp family, as they dash around, are also bickering about schools. Are they open this morning or not? And it's true that in these final days before nuclear war, the schools in Britain would have been closed. Just like hospitals, they would have been emptied of their usual inmates so that they could be readied for a post-war purpose. Schools would have been earmarked as rest centres or feeding centres, or perhaps as overflow hospital space. With their gyms and canteens, they are 
generally good venues for post-nuclear welfare. And yes, earlier in the film we did see a van pulling into the playground of Michael's school and unloading piles of blankets. The other advantage, of course, of closing the schools is that it fits with the government's stay-put advice. The last thing they want is the roads full of mums on the school run and a bunch of kids wandering around. Speaking of kids, uh, Michael is brandishing a copy of the Daily Mirror and if we look closely we can see the headline is Stay calm, says PM. Well, (laughs) is there any message more guaranteed to provoke unease? We saw that in Britain recently with the, the panic buying and the petrol supply issues. As soon as some government spokesperson says there's no need to run out and get petrol... There's no need to buy loads of toilet roll. Everyone goes and does it. It's like saying, don't think of an elephant. You immediately think of an elephant. So let's look at my newspaper archives here and find out what the Daily Mirror's real headline was on Thursday, May the 26th, 1983. Assuming threads, of course, are set in 1983. On that day, uh, the Daily Mirror's front page didn't have any talk of panic. Instead, you won't believe this, or or actually, if you're British, you probably will. The front page headline was Pedal Pushing Diana. That's right, the front page was that Princess Diana was wearing pedal pushers. The scene ends with poor Alison being sent to the shops. Take my purse and see if there's any food left, says her mother. This is the last time we see Alison, and it's quite sad to note that she's wearing her school uniform. So she was dressed for school, she got up, got ready, looking forward to a normal day in the classroom doing her history test. That's something which always really blows my mind, as they say, when reading about war or other horrors from history. The terrible and sudden jolt from normal life to total horror. How quickly we can slip between the two. How did we get here from getting ready for school, putting on the tie, arranging the hair in a sensible braid, to vanishing in a nuclear holocaust? The jump from one state to the other is so stark and so incredible. If you follow the Twitter account for Auschwitz, you'll see that they often post photos and give brief details of victims. And often you'll see a a cute wee Jewish boy with his hair combed for the camera, or a, a glamorous woman in 1940s furs and lipstick, and you know that they went from that to the gas chamber. And I think of this lovely woman slipping on her fur coat, penciling her eyebrows, putting on her powder. And I just imagine a ghost maybe leaning over her shoulder and saying, this is how it's all going to end. You're going to end in a gas chamber. And it's incredible the difference between their ordinary lives and how they ended. 
how quickly we can slip from one state to the other, how fast and ruthless it is. And that's what we see with poor Alison. She got up that morning and got ready for school, put her uniform on, and then she vanishes. As Mrs Kemp sends Alison out, um, she's acting as though this growing nuclear crisis is just another hassle for the poor working mother. So much to do, the house, the cleaning, the kids, and now here comes another hassle. Is this ignorance on Mrs Kemp's part, or is it denial? Other families are fleeing the city. Ruth, as we saw previously, is crying. But to Mrs Kemp, it's all just a big chore. But we do get an eerie hint of what's about to befall her. Because when young Michael, who's treating it all as a big adventure, asks his dad if he'll be building a fallout shelter in the dining room, Over my dead body, snaps Mrs Kemp. The most widespread danger is fallout. Fallout is dust that is sucked up from the ground by the explosion. Fallout can kill. In the next scene, we see a crowd in the street and they're watching the Protect and Survive films through the window of a TV shop. It's the 80s, of course, so what will that be? Dixons or radio rentals or rumbelows? All gone now from the high street. I remember um, in, on 9-11 hearing people say that they watched it through the window of Dixon's or, or similar, seeing it on the TV screens. Perhaps uh, in these last days before nuclear war, the internet, if it had existed back then, as it does now, it would be similarly overloaded as it was on 9-11. Everyone clamouring for information. Although the World Wide Web was designed to withstand nuclear attack, it would have been very hard to knock the internet out although the bomb's electromagnetic pulse might well have killed the device in your hand or the laptop on your desk with which you access the internet. The alternative, of course, in the time of threads was the telephone, the old-fashioned landline, no smartphones in 1983. And yes, your home telephone could indeed have been knocked out, but not by the Soviet attack. Instead, your phone would probably have been cancelled or disabled by your own government. In these last moments before nuclear war, the telephone preference system would be put into action, which would have rendered most residential lines in Britain unusable. The phone um, in your own home would still be able to receive an incoming call, but you wouldn't have been able to make any outgoing calls. This would keep the phone system free for use by the important people, and stop panicked civilians using it to check on relatives, phone friends to cry and worry and spread rumour. And yes, it would have hampered any plans amongst family to organise an unofficial and undesirable evacuation. So imagine how isolated a family would be at this point without the phone. No internet, of course, no Smartphone with Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp. The main roads all closed. So how do you reach your family? How do you speak to them? You can't. And that's how the authorities wanted it. They wanted us to retreat indoors, to stay in our own home. 
already, before the bomb has dropped, we're being encouraged to box ourselves in, to shrink down into individual family units and not think of ourselves as a society or a community. You're on your own and soon enough that community will be your enemy or at least your competitor. The scene changes to the Moor, which is the name of the pedestrian shopping precinct in the centre of Sheffield. It's early morning, which, as we hear, is an ideal time for nuclear war. It's 8.30am, 3.30 in the morning in Washington. Over the past four days, neither the President nor his senior staff will have had more than a few hours rest. This is when they may be asleep. This is when Western response will be slowest. So we know the government have cut off the phones, cut off the roads, cut off the petrol supply. Another way of restricting our freedom and movement at this time would be to take away our access to cash. And we see people queuing at banks and at cash points and the display tells them that they may not withdraw any more cash. Admittedly, by this point, there's not much you could buy. No petrol, uh, supermarket shelves already empty. So, what could you buy? Still plenty of TVs, as we saw. Treat yourself then, in these last few hours, to a big widescreen, 80s style. But seriously, if you are relying on a top-up of money from the cash machine, you're stuck. You're not getting anything. And besides putting a practical restraint or curb on people by denying them cash... It's also a psychological curb, a reminder that this is not a normal time and that the government can do as they wish at this point with your freedoms. No petrol, no money, you may not leave the city. Just crawl under your kitchen door and die. The next scene takes us back to that awful bunker below Sheffield's town hall. Of course, it's not a proper bunker built to withstand blast. It's just a dusty, miserable basement below the town hall. Its ceiling reinforced with steel struts. That hardly gives us confidence on its ability to withstand war. And it is crowded down there with anxious, irritable staff. And it's lit with fluorescent lights. Imagine the headaches caused by those ugly lights, stress, your colleague's cigarette smoke, the sweat and smell of so many people crowded in there with no way to take a shower, and of course the lack of fresh air. How you would gasp for just a breath of fresh air down there. So the staff are crowded round the council leader's desk and they're being given a briefing on state of things up on the surface. Supermarket shelves are empty, they hear. And all the while, throughout this talk, there's a constant pulsing noise. That is the carrier receiver, which beeps constantly to let you know it's working, ready and waiting to transmit the nuclear attack warning, the attack warning red. If the thing was silent, how would you know it was working? So it has to constantly beep, beep, 
beep to let you know it's there. It's scanning for that warning. So the supermarkets are bare. Warehouses are being guarded by police. And as yet, we have not been able to locate all the root vegetable clumps on local farms. The guy gives his situation report and it is rudely interrupted. As yet, we haven't located all the root vegetable clumps on local farms, but stocks of sugar, wheat, flour and rice are quite good. Attack warning. Is it for real? Attack warning. for bloody real. Is it? Right, get to your stations. As soon as you can, every single scrap of information you've got on casualties. I must have that. You'll notice that when the staff hear the attack warning, their first reaction is disbelief. Even though they're primed and ready and waiting for it, even though that's why they are in this miserable basement, when it comes, they still can't quite accept that this is it. And who can blame them? The the prospect is just so horrifying. It's the potential end of the world. And so the brain perhaps won't allow you to accept it. You must think, no, that, that must be a mistake. It can't be real. History gives us examples of the same unwillingness or inability to accept danger. Think of the Titanic, that seems to be the classic example. Even when she was sinking, there were still passengers who clung to the belief that it was an unsinkable ship and there was no way there was any danger. I've read eyewitness accounts where women were thrown into the lifeboats. They had to be thrown in because they were reluctant to leave the ship. Because why? Why leave this lovely, warm, civilised place to paddle around in a wooden boat in the Atlantic? Why? When there's no danger. So some of them were actually hurled into the boats and it was only when they had rowed away and they turned at a distance to look back at the Titanic that they, and they saw her tilted, they saw her bright lights had dipped into the ocean and the rows of her portholes had been sliced off by the black water. Only then could they accept that there was mortal danger. So as the staff hear the warning and scramble to their stations, Mr Sutton, the council leader, calls out orders, one of which is, shut the doors. Now, why on earth were the doors not already closed? Because, we must remind ourselves, this is not a proper bunker, with massive blast doors which have to be clanged shut and properly sealed. It's just a basement beneath the town hall. Perhaps the doors were open because some staff had failed to arrive. We saw in an earlier scene that their colleagues were making phone calls saying, bloody well, get down here. We've all got families. You know, you're not special. Why should you get to stay at home with your family? I've turned up for duty. Get down here. Or perhaps the doors were lying open because these are not military people trained for war. They're just council staff who had drawn the short straw received a summons at the last minute to get down into the basement and take on war duties. What do they know of preparing for apocalyptic conflict? Nothing. And who can blame them? 
We know that Mr Sutton had been sent off in courses, which we assume were civil defence courses at Easingwold, but the rest of them are just ordinary people working in council admin, dealing with bureaucracy. And now, all of a sudden, they're down in the basement getting ready for war. So I don't blame them for not having closed the doors. The next scene is at Jimmy's work, the joinery. He and his pal are being (laughs) besieged by customers who are begging for wood and supplies. I assume this is last minute panic buying, desperation to get materials to build a fallout shelter. But oh god, they are far, far too late. So as the men argue, a sound comes wailing and crying over the Sheffield sky. And they shut up and they listen and they recognise what it is. It's the four-minute warning, of course. Again, as in the bunker, there is a slight hesitation when they hear it, as if to say, no, it can't be happening. Panic takes over. Everyone runs, people scream. The screams and the cries mingle with the wail of the siren, making an unearthly cacophony. But it's all happening in the humdrum location of a Sheffield shopping precinct. Showing us again the terrible and sudden leap from normality to horror. One minute you're outside Littlewoods, the next minute there is the banshee cry of the siren and the end of the world is coming. Mums who had bundled their babies into warm jackets and went out to Woolworths are now screaming in the streets and about to fry. With all the pushing and panicking, with everyone scattering in a thousand directions, we see again that nuclear war shrinks us all down into individuals. As Margaret Thatcher said, no such thing as society. People are shoving and pushing and looking after themselves, getting themselves to shelter. And no one cares about you. In the panic, we see babies and children, plenty of them. Unlike on the Titanic, being a woman or child offers you no special treatment here. Arguably, it's a disadvantage because in the stampede to get inside a shop, to get to some kind of shelter, you, the small woman struggling with a toddler in your arms, you're the one who's going to be pushed aside, maybe fall to the ground. As if to illustrate that, we see an overturned buggy lying at the entrance to a shop. The screen glows white. This is the first bomb. It's not a direct hit on Sheffield or on the ground anywhere in Britain. Instead, it's a bomb high up in the atmosphere of the North Sea. And it sends an electromagnetic pulse which blows out the electrics and communications in Britain and most of Northwest Europe. More bombs fall. This time the screen goes another hot white and people wince and shriek and whip their faces away from the flash. Too late, though. We know that these people will probably have been blinded. And some, if they were looking skywards when the detonation happened, they may have had their eyeballs actually liquefy. Now, this sounds, of course, too nightmarish to be true, but 
It did happen in Hiroshima, as described in John Hersey's famous report from the city. As Michael Aspel said in the war game, this is nuclear war. Back in the Kemp household, Mr Kemp, who had regained some of his dignity earlier, loses it again. (laughs) As the flash lights up his streets, flooding the houses with hot light, he is sitting on the toilet. Bloody hell, he exclaims and pulls his trousers up. As we noticed earlier, poor Mr Kemp just can't catch a break. Someone else loses their dignity at this point. Back out on the shopping precinct, we have the famous scene, the one everyone remembers, where a passerby, played by Anne Sellers, check out her IMDb entry, looks up and sees the mushroom cloud. She clamps her hand over her mouth in shock, and the camera swoops down to her feet, where a stream of urine comes gushing down her trouser leg and out onto her nice white shoes. This is nuclear war. Then comes the blast wave, of course. The light gets you first, the horrible heat flash, and then the blast wave comes lumbering after it. If we can refer back to the war game again, the script notes that the shock wave from a nuclear bomb has been likened to an enormous door slamming shut in the depths of hell. And here it comes now, smashing the windows of the Kemp house, where Mrs Kemp, finally realising this is serious, is clutching poor little Michael who cries and cries and clings to his mum. Out on the precinct again, the blast wave is smashing windows and think of all the plate glass windows we have on that shopping street. And my God, we know what flying glass does to the skin and the face. The director, Mick Jackson, had shown us this a couple of years before Threads in his documentary, A Guide to Armageddon, which you can find on YouTube, where he, in order to illustrate this, he placed a pumpkin next to a sheet of glass. The glass is then shattered by an explosion and in slow motion we see what the broken pieces do to the pumpkin as they streak towards it. They gut the thing, they strip and gouge at the pumpkin until there's nothing left of it but damp, lumpy tatters. This is nuclear war. And this is where our four minute segment ends and I am glad we stop here because this is quite horrible. Sometimes even I find threads a bit too much. Thank you all for listening and uh, thank you all for being patient with me as I said at the beginning while I took my break to finish writing my book. And I want to give a special thanks to all my patrons who've been supporting me throughout. And my patrons have stuck with me and new people are joining all the time. I've now got 200 patrons and I want to thank every single one of them. Remember, if you want to join my Patreon, donate some cash each month to the podcast, whatever amount you choose, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me say thank you and give a shout out to my new patrons who've joined in the past couple of weeks. That's hello and welcome to Scott Fisher, Al, John and Jerry. Thank you to Andy Peck, who increased the amount he pledges each month. 
uh, Ian McIdall, thank you and welcome, and also Brian Johnson and Richard Plaskett. And if you're new to the podcast, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell. I'm on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or you can find me through my website, juliemcdowell.com. So thank you all for listening, and I will be back on Monday. <laughs>